You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for spending your Tuesday evening with us. We are gathered today on the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on which sovereignty has not ceded. My name is Bella and I'll be your moderator for tonight. Just a quick thank you to Professionals Australia, Professionals Architects Australia, um, who is the Union for Architects for organising this event and M Pavilion for hosting us tonight. Professionals Architects Australia is a union for architects, interior architects and landscape architects and have been negotiating and protecting our award wages on behalf of all of us. It is run by elected volunteer committee members, myself included. The aims of this union includes protecting award standards and advancing workplace conditions for all architects throughout their professional careers collectively raise awareness of the role of the architect from its infamously ambiguous and mythical status. Promoting an understanding of the integral roles architects play in designing, shaping and creating urban living spaces and built environments founded upon design excellence, social justice, economic value, leadership and open communication and climate resilience. And as well as encourage a transparent dialogue between employees, employers, and, and industry bodies. Today, we bring you labor in architecture, the future of the profession, something that I'm sure we've all spoken about um, and pondered amongst ourselves. Um, but before we begin our discussion, I would like to hand it over to our panelists to introduce themselves. Shall I go? Yep. Um, I'm Sophie. I'm a graduate or student of architecture. I'm currently doing my master's at Melbourne Uni. Um, I've got four-ish years of experience both here and in London um, in practice, professional practice, um, and have studied in London and Delft in the Netherlands as well, and I'm finally back here. Um, last year I co-curated a feminist reading room with Parla, um, looking at the intersectional feminist theory of architecture. Um, and how we can make architecture a more inclusive and diverse profession. Yeah. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Bonnie, and I'm a landscape architect. Um, I've graduated from my master's, I think, in 2018. And since then, I've been practicing as well as teaching at Melbourne Uni. Um, I'm also an active member of um, Professional Architects Australia, uh, the union as well as co-founder of Trade Unionists of Landscape Architecture, um, trying to kind of build momentum towards unionization in the landscape architecture industry. Um, and I'm also a design activist, currently working um, with the Save the Preston Market Action Group to try and stop the Preston Market from being demolished. Hi everyone, Matt Borg, I'm an architect with about 25 years experience. Um, the first 18 years in practice in 
primarily two practices in Melbourne, design practices. Then I left oh, McBride, Charles Ryan and Woodmarsh um, with a little stint at Lovell Chen, which we won't necessarily talk about, or we might talk about later on after a couple of drinks. Um, I dropped out of architecture or I left architecture for a couple of years and uh, studied and did some teaching. And then I eventually made way, my way back to practice um, after being uh, after teaching at Melbourne University in, in architecture. And then an opportunity came up at the OVGA. So I've been with the OVGA as a principal advisor. Of, I've been with the OVGA for four years, more recently as a principal advisor. So um, assisting government in hopefully making wise choices around the way we procure projects, what design quality is, um, and yeah, really advocating for good outcomes and making sure we're getting good value for our taxpayers. Hi everyone, I'm Rory Hyde. I'm Associate Professor at uh, Melbourne University. And uh, one of the things I'm doing there is setting up the Social Design Award, which we're just working on now as an exhibition and as a partnership with the um, architecture media. So trying to celebrate different kinds of practice, different kinds of um, projects that are more socially motivated rather than necessarily uh, aesthetic, let's say. So I'm simplifying. Um, I did a book a while back called Future Practice, which is very much in line with the themes of tonight, uh, and more recently did a book with my colleagues Harriet Harris and Roberta Macaccio called Architects After Architecture, which looks at, um, uh, I guess, people who study architecture and go elsewhere, and then people who are uh, redefining practice from within. So trying to, um, I guess, stretch the boundaries of what we consider architecture and different forms of practice as well. Thank you. Um, we've got a wide range of experiences here, which is great, um, which would really help um, kickstart the first question of the discussion, which is what do you see as what do you see as the biggest opportunity or obstacle to the future of the architecture profession? Do you have an order in mind? <laughs> no, you can just go. All right, I'm happy to start as the only landscape architect. Um, I kind of, I mean, I think that there are so many ways to answer this question. Um, you know, I, obviously there are lots of challenges um, within architecture which are only within architecture and then there are lots of challenges within architecture which also intersect with challenges that are broader challenges um, in society and in the world. Um, so I would say, ultimately, the greatest challenge um, is capitalism, um, which is also a challenge to life on Earth, you could say. Um, and I think that one of the biggest challenges that um, we face in architecture is actually trying to um, get agency over our work to resist some of the more... Um, neoliberal or profit-driven modes of development that uh, we're all kind of trapped working or contributing our labor towards, um, you could say. And I think simultaneously, this kind of represents as well the greatest opportunity um, within architecture or within the architectural disciplines. Um, because I think that if, if we had widespread understanding of this challenge and ways to um, address or resist or overcome this challenge, 
um, then that would open up a lot of opportunities uh, within the discipline. I'm happy to jump in here. Um, probably bring a different, different perspective. Because um, we're often trying to support architects. Um, we're trying to support good outcomes. So, but the challenge that we face as advocates for that is educating people on the value of what architects and designers bring. And that's value in sort of all levels, not just the value of the object or the thing that's created at the end, but is all of those values um, to society around health, well-being. Um, there's lots of evidence and data around that talks to the value of architecture and good design in general. And, um, and for us, a really big challenge is that, that sort of the part of the equation of value is this thing around time and the time it takes to um, solve complex problems, realise good outcomes and implement them. And they're huge challenges at the moment for us, um, making sure that proper process can happen and without time and understanding of the process, you, you, you don't get good process and then you don't get good outcomes. Are you happy for me to go? Thanks, Sophie. <clears throat> so, the, I, if I remember the question correctly, it's challenges to change or barriers to change within architecture. Oh, what's the biggest opportunity or obstacle to the future? Of right, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, what, this is my standard answer for everything, is practice models. One of the things I've been trying to, I guess, uh, spread around and celebrate and popularise is, is different practice models. I think in architecture we inherit this one practice model, which is... Someone rings us up, we send them an invoice or a fee proposal, it's a percentage of the construction fee and it locks us into this kind of um, version of what doing what we do which is always trying to get more expensive projects and actually not able to fulfil our social contract in um, addressing broader social questions. So I think we need to look outside of architecture for different practice models and um, import them and borrow them and adapt them for our purposes in order to be uh, more publicly minded and um, to be more useful in society. So that's the kind of, um, uh, yeah, that's I think both exactly a challenge and an opportunity, yeah. So what would that practice models look like? Um, I mean, some of them are, less about being paid as a percentage and more about... Um, John Worthington from DEGW, which is a practice that was um, in the UK in the, I guess, mainly in the 80s and 90s. He says, the client is the project, um, the project is not the project, right? And the, it's a critique of how architects kind of um, present and market themselves, which is that it's this rarefied final object. And if you haven't kind of like fought the client for the, um, over every detail, then you haven't worked hard enough. Um, and at the end of it, you should hate each other, but at least you've got this precious thing that you're really proud of. And he says, no, 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 we've got it completely upside down. We, we, we should be supporting clients for decades to manage their change, to manage how they want to um, run their organisations or live their lives with their families and, and be there to kind of um, support them. So one of the uh, things, I think how that translates to architecture here in Australia is like the, something like the architect as GP, where you, um, you know, instead of doing one house every two years or... or you know, a few, maybe one or two more than that, you could do like five houses in a day just by giving really important 
critical spatial feedback to somebody and saying, you should just move your TV or you should um, park your car on the street and turn that into a um, co share, share workspace. Um, that would like make your life way better. You wouldn't have to commute every day. And so I, I, I think that you know we need to think of different ways that we can um, address those different types of questions. And and it would open up a whole new different type of practice for us. Yeah. Awesome, thanks. So that was a very long answer. No, no, that's okay. I think it's interesting that you know we are expected to, and it, it is part of our job to impart a sense of care towards our clients. But I wonder what it's like towards you know the people working within the industry. Sophie, what do you think um, about care? Or um, in the and first question. Well, we can, yeah, yeah talk about a bit both. Of both. I think um, to add to Rory, I think that can extend to education. Um, what is architecture at a university level? I'm teaching first years and they're already asking me in week six, what is a studio? What is architecture? Is it just technical skill? Um, and I question that. I've questioned that in the last eight years of doing architecture and on and off. What is it? what is architecture, how can we practice differently and what are those opportunities in an education sense? Um, and I think that it can be complemented through like, I guess, care, right? Like if you are in environments in which people care about you and your education or um, how you're developing at work, you can start to unravel that for yourself, um, yeah. I think they kind of, they can go together. I guess questioning, I think questioning what is architecture can then be supported um, through good workplaces um, and a good in educational environment. But that's, that's the problem, is the good, <laughs> if they exist, and they do. Um, leading on to the next question, which is about, you know, um, subversive waves of working, as you touched on, Bonnie, and... Um, sense of care. During the past few years, we've all experienced um, an industry that seeks to return to um, pre-COVID ways of working, often under the guise of studio culture. Um, although we have experienced, you know, benefits from being able to reorganise our times um, according to, you know, what suits um, us. So how can architectural workers cement positive change? from what we've learned from the past few years. I don't want to say the word. <laughs> Thanks for that. That was good not saying the word. <laughs> um, I'll try and make a short answer if that's okay. Uh, I, I think that it would be good to do two things. I, I love um, uh, Denise Scott Brown's defence of the architecture studio. She says the studio is architecture's gift to academe. She sees it as a great um, collaborative, um, slightly combative, um, cooperative, you know, thoughtful, discursive space in which to think about ideas and projects. And I think that, you know, that works both in the school and in the office um, when things are working well. So that's a reason to come together. That's a reason for everybody to be in a space, to to work together on, on, on and, you know, set goals and so on. So to be really deliberate about that type of time and the value of it together, and then to be really deliberate about the other type of time, which is, okay, we've got to get <laughs> focused, work done, shut the door. Like, I don't need to be in a brainstorm the whole time. <laughs> and actually, those two things can work um, parallel within this flexible working model. It post <gasps> the word. The thing, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, Matt, what are your experiences or um, thoughts? I liked that? his short answer. Um, <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up for me, to be honest. So I, I wouldn't mind hearing from these guys. Yeah. So for you, Bonnie? Um, yeah, I do have a slightly different take. I think um, that this kind of studio culture that you're describing, which permeates um, academia and practice, is kind of like the beginning of many of the problems in the industry. I think that that is where um, a lot of the kind of entrenched expectations of overwork and um, competition and things like that get reinforced. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not sure what it's been like in architecture in general, but um, from my own personal experience um, in the post world, um, you know, the flexibility that I enjoyed during the lockdowns and everything has slowly been taken away to the point where I now basically don't have any flexibility. And I think that that has a lot of negative impacts, particularly on um, like women, for example. So I'm sure Sophie can um, provide a bit more on that. Also, you know, well, people who are looking after children, predominantly that impacts mothers, um, people who might have disabilities, who potentially can't stick to or would prefer not to stick to the nine to five lifestyle. I think, um, you know, there are so many positives that we could have got out of a more flexible approach to work, which seems like we sort of haven't really cemented those gains. I don't know um, if you've got... Yeah, I mean, um, Parla just released some stats, I think, um, saying that the women are staying in architecture, but the issue now is mid-career architects who are women, um, they're dropping out. And that's primarily the age in which you have children, right? And so I think flexibility is like, it's, it's important, but there's also, um, we need to change the expectation of what that also entails, right? So sure, you can work at home, but does that mean that you're still up till two in the morning because you've had to look after, you know, you've done bath time or whatever. So it's, it's not do the same amount of work at home necessarily. I don't think that's particularly radical. I think maybe actually shifting what the expectation of work is, whether it's, um, you know, more towards time management over a longer period of time. So when projects come in, there is greater time required, but when there is less projects, you, you kind of get that time off again. So maybe there's the flexibility needs to be extended a bit further to actually enable people to, um, yeah, like, you know, I think looking at neurodivergency and how people on the spectrum or who have ADHD is really interesting to look at. Um, how they manage work, it can be very intense, but then you kind of have this post-burnout, essentially, period of um, rehabilitation. And that can be managed, and people study that. They study how you manage burnout. Um, and that takes radical shift in the way in which we approach work. Um, and I think, I think uni, going back to studio culture, <laughs> Um, I think it takes one bad tutor um, at the beginning of your degree to distill in new behaviours um, which become really toxic and we know that stress is infectious. Um, and so for 18-year-olds going into an environment in which they're, you know, they, they're already pulling all-nighters and it's still happening, um, that... that sets up a really bad standard for then when you go into practice because you don't know better. 
you don't have individual agency, you've probably been shattered confidence-wise and so you can't go into a practice and demand to work an eight-hour day if you've never had the confidence or agency to do so before that at a university level when you're supposedly the freest. Um, so I, I love the idea of studio culture, but um, it becomes toxic quickly and it maybe it's getting the right people in to teach, but there's so many great people who teach it. I'm not sure. I don't know how you address that. Um, but I know that it's, it's not always from the top. It's also students who reinforce these behaviours. I intentionally don't study at uni um, because I know I get stressed by what my peers are saying to me, right? So, because I know it's infectious. Um, and then that makes me isolated, but it's a way to manage that. Uh, can I ask a question? Because this question is premised on the fact that those gains have been eroded and I'm not in practice, so I, I haven't experienced that firsthand. I think toxic culture can exist, whether it's hybrid, fully at home, in the office. Um, so I, I don't think it's sort of as binary as, you know, working from home is, is the better outcome and than working from the office, but maybe it happens later on. It would be interesting to understand from the audience, who I think are practitioners mostly, um, what the what the situation is for most people. I'm curious, so maybe that's a conversation. Yeah, we've, we've got um, some Q&A, like a Q&A session towards the end, which I would love to hear um, from the audience, what you think in your experiences. Um, because I think, yeah, we all have vastly different experiences. Like I'm teaching and I'm working at the same time and it's good to see that, you know, people are making efforts to change <clears throat> studio culture. But yeah, again, you see students who are still struggling with that um, with that mentality and I wonder where that comes from. Well, they're young, right? Like 18. <laughs> I mean, you don't know better. Um, I, I started studying later and I feel that that really helped me stay sane because I had boundaries. But when you're 17, 18, entering uni, you don't have necessarily the confidence um, to stand up to your tutor or even sometimes your peers and being like, hey, that's like, why are you doing an all-nighter? It comes down as well to the way that like work is graded, everything's on a bell curve, it's all, um, you know, it's supposed to be against a matrix, but it absolutely isn't. It's all graded against each other. Um, you know, the crit culture as well kind of um, brings in this, well, yeah, basically destroying your confidence. Um, you get used that's, to... Can, uh, that's bad critique. I mean, critique is healthy. We need to be challenged. We need to be questioned. We can fall into lazy habits. We can maybe not put effort in. Um, so there are benefits. I think there's a lot of responsibility if you're an educator or an employer to create a really healthy environment and that's hard work and I think one of the failings of or one of the ch real big challenges is that we're not good business managers or we're not great at human resources as architects, we're not trained and um, you know that requires special skill and effort actually and effort is probably the thing that it requires and empathy like understanding people's situations. So um, I just want, sorry for interrupting <laughs> but I just because yeah I don't want you know, you know, criticism and critique can be constructively done, can be really positive, and that's kind of what my job is. So <laughs> hopefully we're doing okay at that. Um, 
But um, I think yeah. there's also a question of accountability that goes to that, right? Like there's a at least at a university level, no one's being held account. Well, there are certain, I guess, rules around accountability, but in those environments, they're not people aren't really held accountable for what they say to students unless someone says something to an academic. Yeah, I totally agree that um, criticism and critique are completely essential, um, you know, and I have a lot of respect for the OVGA criticism process. I've been through many of those, and in fact, it's always been really beneficial for me as a landscape architect. Often I get what I always wanted from the project through that process, um, you know, so I, I don't want to, you know, I think that there are a lot of positive things about studio culture and being in the office and positive things about um, feedback and criticism. Unfortunately, there is a widespread kind of um, pervasive legacy issue of um, toxicity and a lot of like really kind of unhelpful um, feedback a lot of the time. Yeah, I guess there is a difference between, you know, being critical and giving providing critique to like actually tearing someone down um, just because... I don't know, because you can or because of well, the culture. Well, there's like, there's the whole thing that you are not your work, but if you're a 20-year-old, you are your work. <laughs> like, you've, you've, you're obsessed with it. So, there's, it, it, yeah, it requires a lot of empathy, I think. Yeah, empathy is a really good word. Um, One of the things we've been trialling, um, and look, it's not to... I, I totally agree with this, and, I, and, and um, you know, but I, I agree with also Matt's point that you know, there's crits aren't necessarily toxic. That actually we need to. It's a big responsibility, and it's hard work to create a positive crit culture. One of the things that we've do, been doing now in in thesis is to at Melbourne Uni is peer critics. So every every presentation, your peer is the first person to speak. They're the first person to give feedback. And, and it actually fully shifts the dynamic. You know, we've all been on those terrible panels with like five guys leaning back with their arms crossed, um, just, you know, pointing, not even getting up to bother to look, but just being really dismissive and arrogant about the work. And if somebody behaves like that, they don't get invited back and I'll tell them why. So, you know, it's, we are working hard to change that, that culture, but as you say, it still exists, yeah. So, but, but I do think the crit is an incredible thing when done well. It's a, it can be incredibly supportive, creative, um, productive, and it just can, you know, the, the, after a good crit, the amount of leaps that can take place is, is incredible. There's no other forum, I don't think, that can take its place. Yeah. I think we can, um, I love the peer-to-peer. -peer. I've been in classes like that and learnt the most from, yeah, my peers. <laughs> um, it's interesting looking at even like art practices, right? How they do studio crits because it's often a floor talk. And I think there's something spatially there where you'll kind of stand around a work together. There's no physical hierarchy. There's like, there's, yeah, there's interesting ways in which we can maybe start to shift studio culture that are probably more like practice, right? That we all sit around a table and talk about something that is kind of, I think, not so hierarchical because there's, there's a spatial dimension there. And I think Peggy Deemer talks about it, if, you know, having a panel of people and then someone standing up, you're very vulnerable. Yeah, and we see that all the time at the OVGA because obviously with the word we're not mentioning the last few years, we had to move from a very in-person 
um, dynamic to it completely online. And it's been really interesting to see how that's opened things up in terms of who can be exposed to design review. Um, but, and there is a, it is a bit of an equaliser and it's less intimidating for some people, but at the same time, there are things that we've lost as well without being able to read body language and understand how people are receiving the information. There's, there's that filter between us that we've lost. So, I mean, it's a bit of an aside, but um, anyway, we'll, let's move on. <laughs> um, well, there is, as we can all agree, um, a growing acknowledgement that architect architectural workers are often exploited compared to other workers in the construction industry. Like, if you go onto site, you're the lowest paid person there. Um, why do you think this is the case? Probably for, for lots of reasons. Um, part of what we do is invisible. I mean, if you're talking about construction sites, by the time you get out to site, particularly in a DNC situation, your work is not necessarily visible to people. Um, so I think there's there's the way we deliver and procure projects is part of what's eroded our status, I suppose, because that's kind of what we're talking about. I think I can't, I've actually forgotten the question already. Um, Someone else jump in. Yeah, but Does it so be the lowest paid or the lowest status? Because we're probably not the lowest paid. I reckon we probably, probably towards are. The bottom. I reckon we're probably <laughs> the bottom. Yeah. But was that the question? Yeah. Why are architectural workers often so exploited? Okay. Right. As opposed to like an engineer, what what is invisible about our work that is not invisible about their work, for example? Like if that's the analysis. Why do engineers get paid well and we don't when they're doing a very similar job? They're producing drawings to get constructed. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I actually think that might be one of the issues. Um, you know, we've, I don't think we're very good at, at being clear about what our value is. And we've kind of hitched it onto things like production of drawings and drafting and things like that, which actually there's half a dozen other industries who can do that for us. So we don't have a unique claim over that um, space. Um, what we do have a unique claim on, I think, is like spatial intelligence. And that's the one part that we're terrible at promoting about what we do. So as long as we're sort of operating in a space where others can do it cheaper for us or um, without less, uh, you know, years of training and so on, um, whether you're talking about engineers or draftspeople or um, others in that space. I don't think we can, we'll ever win that fight. So we need to actually move to a different field and declare that this is where we operate. Yeah, and even relinquish some of that production, I think. Yeah, I would love to relinquish some production for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> Isn't that what I, um, BIM technology is meant to have done already? <laughs> oh. um, I kind of had some questions about um, this. You keep mentioning the value of architecture. So the value to who? Like who is actually the client of architecture? So obviously we all know that the value goes beyond the person that's paying us or we hope that it's going beyond the person that's paying us and we're trying to produce um, broader value to society but that's always mediated through a client, right? The person that's hiring us and paying us to do the job. Usually that's a private client who is doing a development to make profit. Um, so who are we convincing about our value? Like the broader public or the person that's paying us? Well, 
both, but fundamentally the person who's paying us, I think. You know, if we, if we can show that you can't do this without us and this is how we're going to make your project better, how you're going to be able to sell your units for more or whatever, then that's a clear value. You can put a price on that. And But I don't think we're doing well in that space. I don't think we are making that case. I think we're making the case of production, which is an easily one to lose. Yeah. Well, I think that they already understand our value. Our value is to make them more money. You know what I mean? So it's like, otherwise, why would they employ us? Okay, so an example of this, I think, is um, that something like good design and sustainable design, whole life cycle costs. So we know, and, I've, and I know this because Matt gave the presentation with these stats in it a few weeks ago, which is that 80% of a building's costs occur after its construction, just through its running costs, right? So if you're a developer, you're doing a build to rent, you're holding onto that product, it, there's a huge value incentive in reducing that, those overheads. But we're not out there, you know, making those statistics clear. We're not out there telling people that good design, sustainable design, the types of design that builders can't just do without us, is going to save you millions over even the medium to short term. Like, that's a clear value, I think. But I don't yeah. think that that's going to translate into them paying us more. I think they'll just be like, great. Well, uh, you know. uh, uh, <laughs> what's your suggestion? I don't know. Well, my <laughs> suggestion, obviously, is <laughs> first of all, widespread unionization. Um, more public projects. Sorry, the, 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 well, I agree with all of this, but the question is on the building side. Yeah. It's not the... Well, it begins before that, right? It begins with what but, is getting built. So we need to fight for what is getting built first and foremost, which is where the value of architecture really comes in. It's not primarily for the person that's employing us. It's for the people that are going to use that product or live in those buildings or experience the public realm. I, I agree. That's the question I'm asking, which is, isn't unionisation about our direct employers rather than our, our clients? Uh, no, it's about a lot more. Okay. Yeah. Yep. What would, would you like you to, to talk? <laughs> yeah, go on. So obviously, you know, there's one layer which is protecting workers from their own employers. Um, and that can have positive upward um, kind of um, pressure, I guess you could say. Like, So at the moment, the architecture industry, I'm sure many of us can agree, is sort of in a constant race to the bottom where there's a lot of like fee undercutting and blah, blah, blah. And obviously those savings have to come from the workers, hence why we're all working all night to deliver these, uh, you know, produce work for our client who isn't really paying us for a lot of the work that we're doing, blah, blah, blah. So one layer is protecting workers from that that obviously forces our employers to then charge more to the client because they can no longer extract that surplus from the worker. But then obviously there, there's like a much broader um, kind of ambition and dream and, and opportunity of unionism, which is actually um, taking control of what gets built, saying, you know, refusing to work on things that we don't agree with, um, or which aren't necessarily in the public interest. And there is quite a rich history of this in Australia, um, not necessarily with architects, but in the built environment. Um, and, you know, um, advocating for broader social benefit that we all, if we all worked together and agreed, we could actually achieve, we can change laws. There are all these things that can occur 
beyond simply working conditions. Isn't, um, you were saying the other day that, uh, or yeah, um, I think in New South Wales, they've made a law or they're proposing, and you're trying to do it too, that um, you need an architect for a certain size of project. Yeah, that's currently, I think it's running at the moment, is that correct? In New South Wales, do you know anything about it? I think to do apartment buildings of a certain scale, you have to use a registered architect, I think. Yes, you do. Does anyone know that? Yep. In New South Wales. Yep. Um, I know in Finland, um, if the building is going to cost more than a certain amount of money, an architect has to be involved in the project. And it's not much, it's like $5,000 or something. Like, yeah, yeah 15000 maybe. And it makes sense because it's, you know, a lot of people will be um, inhabiting the space. So why wouldn't you do that? Why don't we have this re um, legislation in Victoria? Um, which is interesting because the next question is, <laughs> architecture often um, rejects unionism as a path forward for positive um, professional change. So why don't architects conceive their labor as aligned with the values of a union? Class, I hate to say it. <laughs> um, it's a middle class, middle class profession. Yeah, I think so. Um, you, it's. I mean, I know in the UK they've got a huge issue with um, a lot of architecture students being very middle class, and um, it means that it makes education completely unaffordable. So there's new school models to make it more accessible. Um, that maybe we don't actually have kind of like, I, I was reflecting on this question before, like I, like my my mum's in a union and my grandfather created a union. Like that is kind of, it's it can be a very familiar, like family um, experience. And often it requires, uh, I mean, it's a bit different now, but that's a working class route. And if architecture is very middle class, then you don't have exposure to it. Um, and maybe there's a, yeah, there's a bit of elitism, like we're above that. Yeah, this is actually what I was gonna say about the main challenge in architecture is just a total lack of like um, political awareness. And, um, you know, most, most people working in architecture are actually working class, but unfortunately don't kind of um, perceive themselves that way and have kind of in general more of an upward um, aspiration, you could say like class aspiration. Lots of people think they're going to be the director of their own practice one day, for example, and there isn't really this kind of idea that maybe I need to have solidarity with other people in the same situation as me and then we can all collectively um, change our situation. Well, my reflections were similar. This, I think there is a definite elitism within our, our field and it's a, a culture of the individual and you know, I, I think enough's probably been said. Oh, um, exactly. I mean, there's a, Peggy Deemer writes brilliantly about this, of the gentleman architect and it, it is intended in that gendered way as well, which is the person who identifies with the client more than the um, builders right? They're there to advocate for the client's interests. So it goes back to the core of the profession, 
the core of the institutes, the core of the professionalization of architecture. So I think, um, you know, new kinds of institutes and, and um, obligations and uh, I guess, who are we, the question of who are we accountable to needs to be asked again and reminded because it's sort of become hard-coded uh, in who we work for and, who, and how we operate, yeah. Just to add to that too, I think when we think of unions, we think of the CFMEU and actually the biggest union in Australia is the nursing and midwifery one followed by the teachers one. Yeah, right? my mum's in the teachers union. Yeah, so it's a, fem like it's a very... Um, female-dominated space unions in Australia. Because it's, um, you know, predicated on care, <laughs> to bring that back. I might also add, um, I did a bit of a poll in my office about the union and no one actually knew that there was a union that they might be able to join. So, um, and I think that's probably for lots of reasons because a lot of us come through small practices where no one actually wants to be seen to be difficult. Um, and don't want to make a fuss, but also there's maybe there's a visibility issue for the union um, as well. Would you like to talk about, for example, the um, nursing union and what they've achieved in the past few years, Bonnie or Sophie? Oh, I think they have, I think, you know, they have been overworked for the past few years because of the word we don't say and um, through unionising and collective work, um, they have been able to um, achieve better pay, better work conditions, um, as well as um, better mental health plans, which is amazing. Yeah, which, you know, world. if I had someone looking after me in hospital, I would hope that they were well-rested, mm. mentally well, well-paid, etc. So I think, you know, obviously the benefits to the worker extend beyond the worker. Well, absolutely. If you, you know, pay someone to design your house, you would expect them to have a good house and good mental health and, you know, good health conditions in order to design your house or design whatever, design the civic realm, design everything around us. I think um, it's interesting that, like, we can, we can kind of learn, we've got that issue with retaining women in mid-career and you look at something like nursing or teaching and they retain women through that period of their life and... Like, it's pretty, like, we've got more, I think, 50-50 grads or maybe slightly more women, I'm not sure on the stats. Um, so, we've got a very female-dominated workforce coming through. Um, and if there's kind of, if you know that you are going to have certain level of parental leave um, across the board and that it's not which company you get the job at, um, that might also help um, retain staff and actually keep people in the profession because I, I, like, I personally know a lot of women who are leaving. And that's terrible. Like, what does it say about us as an industry when, you know, all the great people are leaving, like, the industry just because they can't afford to, you know, they have to choose. No one should ever have to make that choice between, you know, your career and your family. Um, well, based on your lived experience and indiv individual perspectives, um, what sort of change needs to happen to create a more sustainable profession for the future? I mean, I think we've kind of somewhat answered parts of that question. Um, I think there are lots of different things that could change. Um, so obviously, 
parental leave would be one, um, equal parental leave for, for um, all parents, not just mothers, more flexibility. Um, but beyond, beyond that is, um, you know, I think that we really do struggle with um, a relevancy issue because of the lack of kind of political um, activism or awareness in general. Obviously, there are exceptions, but I'd say that, like, as a majority, um, most design workers aren't really participating in um, the struggles that are being had um, outside of the design realm, but which intersect with design. Um, you know, we actually are involved in a very political profession. Um, our profession deals with land and land use um, and public space, which is increasingly becoming privately enclosed. Um, so we do or could or should have a very important role to play. Um, and I don't think that uh, we, like this, the profession isn't going to have relevance if um, we don't collectively kind of start actually being active in those spaces. I don't know if you agree, Sophie. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's political. <laughs> um, I've been, I've, I'm astounded. I chatted to someone yesterday who had someone say to them at uni, architecture is not political. Um, yeah, it's political. And I think the collective that it's not made up of a bunch of individual people that actually, um, no matter, I guess, your experience that there's maybe a sense of collective, um, I don't know, agency um, that we have power as a group rather than certain individual people um, with the loudest voices. So do you think that means our peak bodies or our peak body, the Institute of Architects, needs to have a stronger voice? Yes, that's one part of it. Yeah. And maybe the workers <laughs> too. Like the... I. It was... Yeah. I don't... I, I, it's, it seems like at the Institute, I know this is just from a student perspective, but um, it, it's again going back to like the loud, the kind of individual loud voice, even though they're a collective, that they're a group. Um, I think, I don't know, yeah, maybe union. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know, the, the AIA actually does have some radical history. It's just um, kind of been slowly degraded away. So back in the 1970s where um, construction workers were very politically active, um, the Australian Institute of Architects was involved with that, um, you know, and at some point in, in time that kind of, be, they became divorced from that um, movement, you could say. But ultimately I think it has to come from the bottom, not the top. Well, I, I, I'm learning a lot tonight. It's really interesting um, hearing from this um, union perspective and I like this sense that uh, you know, solidarity in the workforce can provide upward pressure a bit outside of the architecture um, into, towards the clients who are commissioning. I would also have thought that, that that a body like the Institute ought to be applying that upward pressure as well from where they, from where they sit through things like... Um, I mean, I, I would imagine, and maybe you can speak to this, um, Matt and Bonnie and others, around the, I guess, the procurement um, evaluation, you know, at the moment price wins over everything rather than the skills or expertise or experience that you can bring to that um, project. And if those 
things were recalibrated. Otherwise, I'm just worried about this race to the bottom. I just think that it's, you know, until there's complete solidarity across the board, it's, it's, someone's always going to be undercutting and they're going to be winning because we, we award price, projects on price. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I think it's probably going back to what is the biggest challenge. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's primarily the challenge that we face, yeah. I'm avoiding talking about this. Um, look, because it's, it's, it's interesting because, yes, you're right, often it does come down to price, but often we're looking at equally capable people. So it's how do we stop ourselves from that race to the bottom, which then even you can have all the capability in the world if you don't have the time to deliver and the time to do things in a reasonable manner. Um, you, you're not going to have healthy a healthy culture and healthy workers, and you're probably not going to have an excellent built environment. So I think there's a lot of um, inward looking that the, the, our profession needs to do. Um, at the moment, there's a, there's a lot of pressure coming from all, lots of directions. It's, it's hard to do that reflection. Um, I don't know. We, someone needs to push the big pause button, and I don't know who's going to be brave enough to do that. Well, are you saying we need to go on strike? <laughs> I think it's interesting that you keep mentioning this time thing because I think it is very accurate. You know, a lot of the pressure that we're under is actually time pressure and it's deadline pressure. And once again, that comes back to this race to the bottom where it's like, you know, we, our fees are too small and we can't actually afford to spend more time. Because if, if you, I can probably elaborate a bit on the time thing. Is that for us, we're always advocating for time. And sometimes it means whole stages of projects that actually cut out of a procurement process. So things go from concept design to documentation. And I'm like, oh, I sort of remember a few other steps in between. So what I, one thing I would say, I would urge people that are pitching for work, and I'm speaking, you know, often this is the government sort of sector, don't agree and sign up to things that you know you can't actually deliver a good outcome for and you know is fundamentally wrong. The number of times I see and hear complaints after someone signed a contract, it's like, you know what you're responding to, push back earlier. Um, so, again, I'm going a little bit off topic, but um, yeah, because otherwise you become the victim when you actually have the power to maybe influence things earlier. So. But I guess that's the whole thing, right? Like the tr that trickle down, this person agrees, and then they kind of push it off to, you know, people who are working with them. Or so I'm talking them. to the decision maker, the people that are signing on to do something. Yes. Because I, I, th I think that's what we're sort of circling around. Is, is there's not? I mean, time is a consequence of money, and there's not enough money sloshing around these. Um, practices in order for people to do the work. I know a lot of practice, you know, leaders who are feeling this same pinch because of this um, intersection that you're talking about um, with the people who are commissioning them. And, you know, that's right. I think that, you know, often it requires a lot of education um, and communication and taking the time during that briefing stage. Um, we've just set up a new project and it took months of saying no 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 we need these extra stages here at the start before we even start drawing to do the consultation and most people would love to scratch that off on day one because they don't think it's necessary or they think they know so just to try and expand that space at the front where those um and to get paid for it properly i think is is important and but most clients don't know that they don't know how a project works 
um, and it requires quite a careful explanation to show how to get a good outcome. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we do actually have that sense of, like, we do have agency in not, well, educating clients and letting them know that what the process is actually like. Um, would you like to expand on anything at all or add to? Um, I'm kind of intrigued by the, the next generation. Uh, you say it on, like, TikTok. <laughs> hate to bring that in. But um, how kind of in, I guess, the hustle culture of just going, you know what, this isn't suiting me, I'm going to leave. Um, and that seems to be a generational shift, I'm not sure. Um, but there's less, uh, I think, people in, um, around, you know, in their 20s are less uh, willing to stay in a place if they don't have to. And again, it comes down to, I guess, if you if you have a union, then you know that someone else isn't going to take that job um, and that it's not just the scraps are left over. But, um, yeah, I'm kind of intrigued by a new generation coming through who aren't necessarily buying into hustle culture and who will work 16 hours a day um, for no money. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Um, we're just going to open up to the floor now if anyone had any think they would like to share or ask any questions hi um well i'll start with a question and then we if we have time then i'll talk a little bit more again and also but i think the question is that regarding the artificial intelligent time and the beginning of it do architecture exists in 10 years and do we need architects or is the profession dead? So was your question, will we need architects in the future? Uh, absolutely, I think. Um, I think for me an architect isn't someone that just makes a building. Um, I think we're really creative, complex problem solvers and those skills can translate to lots of different problems. Um, I just think the mediums and the tools will shift and maybe we'll have to do a lot more with a lot less. In the well, that's clear that we're going to have to do a lot more with a lot less in the future. So I think if we're smart and agile enough, absolutely there'll be a role for us. A really brief addition to that. We're problem solvers, but we're also um, question framers. And I think that's a much harder job for an AI. Yeah, I mean, I think that the industry has faced, um, you know, rapid technological development several times, um, and we've been agile enough to adapt to that. I'd personally be extremely happy if AI could do several parts of my job, totally happy to give that to a computer. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, like, it, it, in terms of, like, the technical production, yeah, if a computer can do that, why not? But I think that, um, you know, there are still going to need to be people there framing an approach, essentially. Does anyone have a question or will I elaborate on that team as well? <laughs> I'll give it to you. I'm running a practice. And does that, can everybody hear me? Yep. Does that, it's already illegal, it's a criminal offence for wage theft to occur, but 
the number of people I interview who are coming to work with us who will not take their claim to fair work despite the rampant failure of architectural practices to pay people properly are probably coming back to university, right, and the experience that everybody's had and needs in the pecking order to pack there. Where does that line exist for you in the... Like, can I, as a business owner, be in the union or, or is it a them and us? Um, for me personally, the line is just basically if you have the power to hire and fire, then... Um, well, no, you could be in the union, I think, but you can't be, you know, you're not a worker. I think it also depends, like, I mean, if you're a sole practitioner, then you could be in the union. Um, I don't know, Tom, do you have more to add to this? Sort of, to uh, answer that, I was at um, a fascinating meeting a couple of weeks ago where there's this issue going on where the CFMEU is um, trying to force... Um, surveyors to join their union, but they don't technically have coverage. And for some reason or other, I ended up in the room full of all the heads of business of the surveying industry in Melbourne trying to discuss what the hell to do about this because the CFMEU was actually forcing people onto a contract that was worse than their own award conditions. Um, and some of those heads of business were union members and they were advocating for a unionised response and to take that as an opportunity to improve the standards of their industry in terms of workplace culture and to, to set up industry-wide EBAs using the new multi-employer bargaining system. And that was coming from some of the bosses, you know. They'd been union members for years, ended up in charge of their own companies. Doesn't mean that you can't be a member, doesn't mean you can't advocate for people's rights. I, I do that from a middle management position I think I still would if I was running the practice. I mean, I still call myself an architectural worker. Yeah. But I work really hard. That, that the, in some of the architectural institute practice forums, there are discussions between leaders about these issues, and it's very much them and us. How do we control our stuff? Yeah. How do we mitigate this? How do we do that? Well, what are you talking about? I mean, I think that, like, ultimately, personally, unionism is good for employers as well. I think it's good if everyone has, like, an open and understanding of what, um, you know, the conditions that you're supposed to be providing to your workers is, and it helps to prevent, you know, undercutting and things if, you know, it's not fair for an employer who wants to pay their employees well and give them good conditions if their competitor isn't doing that. So, I, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, we're part of the same fight. Because there's an award, right? But we're not allowed to price fix because there used to be a fee schedule and we're not allowed it anymore because somebody said, what, but where's the competition, right? So it feels like there's this kind of disconnect between legislation and what we're trying to do as business people with our team to lift everybody up. All we want to do is tell better stories, right? That's what we're all trying to teach each other how to do. And the stories we tell to our clients need to put that value proposition to them so that they go, yeah, I don't want the cheapest guy, I want the guy who convinces me. I want the guy who says, or the woman, or the team, who says, that's the right story. Look at the price, don't worry about the price, that's what we've got to sell people. Well, that's great, maybe you should join the union. Um, <laughs> does anyone else have any questions? I don't think I'm allowed enough. Uh, my friend. Oh, sorry, <laughs> you go first, thank you. Um, if you are 
do you guys have any suggestions for ways to build solidarity amongst your workers if you're potentially in a bit of a disenfranchised or disempowered position? Um, I don't know. I mean, everything I've kind of tried so far hasn't been overly successful, so I'm not sure that I have any good advice. Um, I, I think not necessarily in a workplace, but across the board, talking to your peers about what you get paid and what your conditions are and not making it a secret. Um, uh, I think that means that you kind of are checking in on each other and kind of checking out other practices and going, hey, that's not, that's not legal. Um, and I think there's a lot of, like, we, we probably need to be more open in our communities about our own conditions because then we can support each other. Um, I find people are strangely secretive about how much they get paid um, and that just reinforces gender inequity as well. And so I'm always that one who's like, so what do you get? What's your, what's your pay? Um, what are your conditions? Um, and I think then that helps other people who are in difficult situations to go, oh, there are better options. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there is a bit of a legacy of, like, pay secrecy clauses, um, unfortunately, which thankfully the law has now changed, but um, people are very uncomfortable with it in general, yeah. Pay secrecy clauses, so your employee's not in... Oh, I'd never even had a contract probably for the first 12 years of my career in architecture, so that's interesting to hear. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> In some cases, it might actually be beneficial because the contracts can uh, not work in your favour sometimes. You guys have spoken about time and cost and then also this studio collaborative space. Do you think that part of the issue around um, agency in architecture is formed by the fact that this is the way we've always done it. So therefore, you it's from the top down when you've got 18-year-olds on like display is you need to work up the ladder. Um, and then instead of going understanding that your skill set and that kind of like that's what our value is like you can't get someone who hasn't done architecture into an architecture studio and get them to even do the procurement process and that value isn't there. So is that confidence needed to be a replacement for the idea of, well, this is the way it's always been done? Can that potentially, like, instead of putting so much emphasis on this is the way it's done and changing that emphasis into what is the opportunity of architecture, could that potentially be... <laughs> I don't know. We have a lot of time where we're in studios, but we're not actually talking about what we do. We're talking about how it's done. Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, I think that in general, like, studios are set up in a very hierarchical manner. So I think that partially, um, you know, this idea about different ways of practising could be um, to explore a less hierarchical approach to the studio, not necessarily changing... Um, like the design process, but rather the actual kind of um, relational aspect of the studio um, and looking at things like, you know, employee ownership models, for example, and things like that so that it's not so rigid. Like, you know, it's almost like it's kind of 
like ranks there's a rank structure in design um in terms of like you're a graduate designer and then you move up the ranks which i don't think is necessarily present in all professions or even in architecture i've got friends in norway who are in a co-op an architecture practice and they don't they're all architects like it doesn't matter if you're a student you can still be a project lead which is really radical but um yeah, they, there are models in which you have no hierarchy um, and you can create studio environments which are the same. I guess the other side of that is um, there's a lot to learn and, and I think that when practices take that as, a, as their responsibility and how they um, nurture and train um, younger staff and to give them the time to explain things and to actually invest in them to train them up is really important. So I think there's sort of two sides to the flat hierarchy thing. We also ought, ought to um, recognise the role that mentors play in, in, in developing progression, yeah. And there's also reverse mentorship too. So that's also to say that I think like a generational, uh, you can learn from different generations and that older um, people in the practice or more experienced can also learn from younger people Absolutely. Too. No, no, that's right. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I didn't to mean to, re to yeah. reinforce the hierarchy, but exactly. I, I, I always find that, um, you know, the people who are doing the drawing, do, drawing the lines are closest to the questions and to feed those back into the project is really valuable as well. Yeah. Sorry, the second half of my question was, okay, we are taught that, well, currently our scope of work is up until practical completion and although that's trying to change through things like um, understanding participation and consultation in practice, at the moment that kind of isn't given a price point and so we then go and do that work without it being priced. Is there opportunity to kind of like uplift our, our profession by kind of giving value to the fact that we go well beyond our scope and the idea of practical completion. Yeah. Like it just, is it all right if I jump on, onto this one? I, I mentioned um, John Worthington a while back and his practice DGW. That they have this great diagram which shows um, the high value parts of architecture are outside of our scope, right? Upstream, Briefing, just finding the problem, working with client on the client side to imagine what their questions are. And at the very other end, which is the post-occupancy management and um, ultimately defining the next brief, which goes back in terms of this question of um, working with people over decades rather than just for the period of the project. So again, for me, this comes back to this question of um, how do we define our value? You know, we, I think a lot of architects give that type of stuff away for free. They don't even know that they're doing it. They're just doing it to get the project. If we were much more articulate about the value that occurs within those stages, um, showing that we can do them and, and charging properly for them, I think we could, you know, buy some of the time and space that we're all talking about as, tonight, yeah. It's interesting because it makes me think then about you know, a lot of procurement now is based around a competition or an, a submission of a concept design. Um, 
you know, we, we forgo so much when we, in, you know, are part of those processes. So do we start, you know, does our profession just say no to doing that, to participating in that? Will it be, is it brave enough to say no? Well, no to unpaid competitions. Yeah, that, absolutely, that would be a good start. But even in the paid competitions, it's usually a token fee. Well, and paid properly like the Europeans do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we're talking about that, you know, the, free, the stuff that we do at the, at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The competition stuff is, is interesting. We, we are trained as a profession to become brief takers. Someone bigger than us and wiser, probably a project manager and another project manager, has worked out what the, the fucking problem is and we all brief take and get the lowest fee and win the job. We need to become brief makers yes. so that we actually identify problems, opportunities, clients, issues and take that to the market as a storyteller. What is the pro what's the opportunity here? So to shift that, even within a practice as a person, don't be a brief taker, be a brief maker. Have impact on what you're doing, your process, and, and, and actually try and shift it from a, a, a task to a, to, a, to a kind of a creation. There's, there's so much in there. The, the Brian Boyer has this great phrase, which is, who owns the problem, right? So who owns the question that you are ultimately addressing? If you can find that person and find a response to it, there's, a, there's an open door waiting for you. We don't ha we, somehow we, we put ourselves in these small places fighting with each other, scrapping over crumbs with other rats in a cage. <laughs> and actually, there's all of these places outside of these defined spaces where we can um, walk into and, and demonstrate our value. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Those long-term relationships. It's like a GP. Don't go to five GPs and say. Absolutely, I do agree with that. Um, and I think that, you know, that knowledge that you gain from, you know, like speaking to one another can definitely be, like, there's no point if you're doing it on your own. It just feels like an up, like, you just feel like you're Icarus. Wait, no, that's a different reference, my bad. Um, it's just like an ongoing battle. Sisyphus, thank you. Um, yeah, so I think the key thing here is solidarity, is being together and like talking, yeah, talking, having these discussions. I think before we do that, though, we need to, you know, make sure that everyone is not, you know, yeah, everyone's safe. Exactly. Everyone's safe. Everyone's paid. We don't have to worry about rent. How are we going to make rent for the next month? Oh, we're going to have a child, I guess. What do we do now? Um, yeah. So I think that's why we need these basic, um, what do you call that? Like the basic sense of care. And that doesn't exist at the moment, um, which is why... I mean, it exists within us, but not collectively. So how do we make sure that it, it exists structurally so that, 
that's just, you know, the basic. Um, does anyone else have any other questions? When when someone puts in a fee, when someone puts in a fee that's lower than yours, what do you think is behind that? Why do you think they're able to do it cheaper or willing to do it cheaper than you? Depends who the someone is as well. Like, you're talking about another architect? You're talking about a drafting service? Yeah, you put, you put in a fee proposal and you get beaten. You, you put in a fee proposal and you thought this is what's required to get it done and they come back and say, unfortunately, you're beaten by 40% by this other firm here. And you think, shit, how the hell were they going to do that for that well, scope? Not, they're going to charge variations. They're going to buy the job, keep their staff turning, and build variations. They're going to rely on the fact that it's poorly briefed or there's going to be changes and something's going to happen. And they might have 150 people and they don't want to sack 20 and so they're better off getting a job for nothing because they're going to pay everybody anyway, or not, and doing it. And, and wage theft is the biggest wave coming on architecture like it's just been through like it's just been through hospitality and see COVID stopped that wave because everyone went fuck I need to keep my job but that wage theft issue is going to break pretty soon seven years back you need to be able to prove you paid everybody properly gave them all their it's a it's a major issue for big practices and small now who's got seven years of back pay at a big practice oh it would sink half the practices and then we'd all be able to charge properly. Right? <laughs> the only way to do it. Like, the sooner it happens, the better. So does that mean there's too many architects? How do people feel about the number of architects? There's definitely not too many architects because we're probably doing, what, 5 to 8% of the building work out there. So there's definitely not too many architects. Yeah. And at 5 to 8% of the buildings that we're involved in, that's the value proposition. We're only involved in five to eight percent of the buildings, and so everyone sees architects. When you say to anybody, "I'm an architect," they go, "Oh, great!" And you go, "What? What do you mean? What do you mean? Oh, great!" Like it's really hard. But we're only hired by the people who've got a lot of money, who are also the fucking tightest about actually spending money on on, on design. They'll go and buy a fancy car for whatever. But you know, sorry. So how, how does one achieve solidarity in the profession? Um, is that the role of the union or, or what, you know, the institute? Uh, if solidarity is the answer to some of these uh, questions that have, have been put forward, how I do think we achieve that? I think it's a good question. Um, I think it's a very important question. Um, I think it's a huge challenge. I think it probably starts at university. Um, I think that's where the kind of individuality and competitiveness begins and the valorizing individual achievements or individual ideas, individual designs. I think it's potentially less widespread in landscape architecture just because of the, like, the nature of our work is less monumental, if you like. Um, but, you know, that's, that's likely where it starts. And then I think that in the studio, some of those... Um, kind of competitive traits get reinforced through things like individual contracts, secrecy clauses, people not being able or willing to talk about um, the experiences that they're going through so they don't actually realise that everybody is experiencing the same 
um, you know, experience of exploitation, X, Y, Z. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of, you know, politically, personally, inside themselves, they don't have the framing to think, how do I address this? How do I talk to my co-workers? How do we collectively work together? What are the avenues that we have um, to help each other? Yeah. I'm kind of curious about our profession, what our personality types are. If someone did a lot of personality testing, because I've worked in a lot of excellent teams where there hasn't been a lot of competitiveness. It's been very collegiate. It's, um, and yet somehow in some of those situations, we've collectively been exploited. <laughs> um, so there's a vulnerability and a powerlessness that comes with our personalities. I think, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. I'm just putting stuff out there. But it would be really interesting to analyse personality types in our profession um, because I think, yeah, there's a lot of goodwill and but we find ourselves in these positions. I've worked, I've worked long hours willingly yep. and I only look back on it as a, you know, as, a, as such a, what the issue that it is, yeah. Maybe it's an open blackboard of how many hours did you work and what are you getting paid from directors all the way down. Transparency. Transparency would be hugely beneficial. And that's the calling idea, right, too? So, like, the idea that it's a calling, therefore, like, it doesn't matter that we don't get paid because we really want to do it anyway. Um, it can be double-edged sword, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't really have it both ways. You can't have a profession that's um, got very large uh, percentage of people who are of a personality type that is inclined to, uh, that is caring and also willingly uh, devotes perhaps more time than a project may necessarily require because they're doing something that they're falling in love with. And so you can't have that kind of... Um, approach, I think, to, to work and then complain afterwards and say, well, yeah, I put in all that extra time, but I, sh I should have been paid for it. I mean, if it's a voluntary choice. I mean, I'm personally not loving it when I am drafting the 77th revision on some drawing that my, you know, boss needs me to do. I have passion for my work, but not for um, the, re you know, the kind of like reality of production. So I do do volunteer work as a designer, but I'm doing that because I'm passionate about the outcome of that work, which is the benefit to the community, the benefit to the people that I have an obligation with, you know, in the broader community, not just designers. Um, whereas I think a lot of the time, you know, when you're actually in a studio producing work, who's your client? Normally it's like someone who's already a billionaire who can easily afford to pay you more um, or can afford to pay you tomorrow instead of today. Um, you know, so yes, there is like passion, but it's like, who are you giving it to, I guess? And like, I mean, you look at nurses or doctors, care professions, they still get paid for their work. <laughs> so they're not mutually exclusive. You can still be paid and care, right? Well, I think there's a lot of people who would say nurses don't get paid uh, no, they as don't much get, as they should. But they have a union that ensures that they get paid at least a living wage, which, I mean, architects at one at some point almost don't. 
is that really true that architects don't get paid a living? Is that a fair statement? Yes. Yeah, it's a working class wage. So in so in in the UK there is a base award rate, right? And then they have an additional a living wage above that. So their base rate they acknowledge that their award rate isn't a livable wage. And it's very similar here. I'd be very interested to have a look at that. And I'm not putting forward one view I, I one way or the other. I just, I'm an architect myself, but I've worked most of my career on the development side, and I just see so many examples of architects, um, I think, allowing themselves to be taken advantage of in some cases. And what I'd like to see is the architectural profession become much more hard-nosed uh, in a business sense, um, and uh, accept the fact that uh, things like contracts, for example, are a necessary evil, if you will. Um, and, and these things just have to be mastered because otherwise you just get beaten up. I can only hear half of what you said, but um, I think you're, that's at a leadership level and I think a lot of what we're talking about is then people beneath that don't have that power to make those calls and, yeah, and, and once that power is taken away from you, it's very difficult to say no and um, to draw the line. Oh, absolutely. As an employee, you've got to, you know, stay employed. I think we've got um, time for one more question. Yeah, and I think that anywhere where there are shared issues, there's opportunity for solidarity and allyship, and I think that that is where we should be building our our allegiances. Yeah. Where, so where does the accountability come into that issue, though? I mean, if I heard about a practice who underbid and then just screwed us with variations and just was a complete bully on the project, impossible to work with, you know, if someone called me for a reference because they were going to employ them, I wouldn't employ them like don't don't they lose work in the long run like where is the where does the loop close i'm just amazed that there are practices out there operating like this um not getting like called out for it do people not ring references do we not do, do we, we'll ring a reference when we're going to employ somebody for forty thousand, but we won't ring a reference when we're going to spend 20 million on our new extension to the museum like it's kind of amazing isn't it That's pretty much. <laughs> I guess that forty thousand employment thing's a problem. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I, you know, I'm just interested in. I'm interested in, you know, where the money comes into this system. Like that, for me, seems to be the threshold that is the is the issue. I don't think there's a lot of practice owners driving fancy cars. I see this as an industry-wide issue. And yes, we need to create solidarity at that level. But as you've said. We need to be much tougher in, in 
um, calling out bad practices and advocating for ourselves collectively above. Yeah. So whose responsibility is it to call it out? So that's well, something that's that, well, that's something that a union can do. Can they? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's you know a role that they can play. Obviously, individual workers are going to be too afraid. Well, that's so why I'm asking where the yeah where the accountability comes from. But I'm I'm meaning at the client level. Yeah. yeah. Hundred percent. It's not. It's just a club, right? And so, as a club, they're not interested in that, and they, sh they fucking should be, because it's critical. When you want to put a building in for an award, you need to show everybody who worked on it the hours, the time, the costs, and how you did it, right? Because right now they're making us put in all of the carbon load and the sustainability and all that shit down to the last fucking erg. It should be the same with your labour. It should be the same. Yeah, on that note, um, are there any closing comments from the course? Thanks, everyone. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thank well, thank you. you for the lively discussion. I could maybe just to finish on a positive, slightly positive. Oh, there's been lots of positive positivity tonight. But um, I, and I'm not an old codger yet, but in my 25 years or whatever it is, I have seen generational change for the positive that has benefited me as one of the older people. So, um, you know, these are not insurmountable problems. I think, again, it comes back to that if we have a bit of empathy for our fellow people, um, it goes a long, long way. Thank you. Empathy and care. Um, oh, I'd like to close this discussion by thanking Curry for organising this talk today and let's put our hands together for our guest, everyone. Um, and if you're facing any sort of unfair treatment or would like to, you know, speak to someone or talk to... Um, talk more about your, your working conditions. You can always come to Professionals Australia. You can speak to Tom, Curry, or myself. Um, yeah, thanks. Good night. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>